You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. When I was a Talmud major at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is one of the majors that uh, you could be in the undergraduate program, which was a joint program between Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary, which I attended as an undergraduate. As a Talmud major, you had to take uh, two classes in addition to the normal kind of uh, uh, program of Talmud classes, of specific Talmud study. And the two classes were codes for majors, which I was sad to find out was not like, uh, you know, like, like the matrix or like Bible codes. It was, uh, codes like law codes, um, which was interesting once I got into it and got past what I was expecting it to be. So you had codes for majors and you had Mishnah for majors. Mishnah for majors um, was a class that I can't say that I was particularly looking forward to. I loved the study of Talmud. Um, and Talmud has a, uh, a distinct kind of uh, give and take and argumentation. Uh, the language of it is very unique. Uh, the process of learning it is very unique. And I was anticipating that Mishnah was actually, in a, in a certain sense, a regression. I, the only real experience I'd ever had studying Mishnah as Mishnah was when I was in uh, middle school uh, at the Hebrew Academy in Atlanta, and I took Mishnah with Rabbi Lou, who may or may not listen to uh, this sermon when it's on podcast, so I'll be careful what I say, because he taught Mishnah, I'm sure, perfectly well, but I was not a particularly good uh, Judaic student when I was in elementary and middle school, um, and, uh, and, and so was not a particularly big fan of uh, Mishnah in uh, elementary middle school. Um, I, I remember even uh, once... I'll do an all hate for this, uh, cheating on my Mishnah test. And, uh, and Rabbi Lou, God bless Rabbi Lou, because he, I mean, it was, he saw the cheat sheet in my desk, okay? And it was in my handwriting, the exact same handwriting as, uh, as my test. And so he, he, so he finds it and he, uh, calls me, you know, into the room, you know, when everybody leaves. And he shows me the cheat sheet and he shows me my test that has the exact same writing and he says, is this yours? And I look him straight in the eye and I said, no, it's not. I've never seen that before in my life. <laughs> and because he's a mensch, he, uh, uh, he, he uh, um, excused me. Um, and uh, it was enough of a scare for me to not cheat again. But uh, uh, so I think he realized that. Uh, otherwise, he might have uh, laid the hammer down a little bit harder. But he was a mensch, so he didn't. So anyway, um, that was my experience with Mishnah before college. And I get to college. I had to take Mishnah for majors. And the class is taught by this uh, elderly gentleman named uh, Professor Dov Zlotnik. Professor Zlotnik is not one of the great uh, names of the Jewish Theological Seminary that, uh, that I had learned about before I had gone to the seminary, right? So uh, Heschel, uh, Kaplan, Saul Lieberman, right? These are the great luminaries of the seminary in the generation before I got there. And the great luminaries of the seminary when I was there were people like Joel Roth, 
Eliezer Diamond, Mayor Rabinowitz, many of whom I had as Talmud professors in the Talmud program. Dov Zlotnik was a name I didn't know. But as I walk in the class, I realize this guy has been at the seminary for like a century. And, uh, and, and so he begins teaching the class. And, and, and Professor Zlotnik has a, a very uh, unique way of teaching. Very different than the pedagogy of most college professors nowadays, and probably most Judaics teachers nowadays. He was adamant that the Mishnah was primarily and foundationally an oral text. And so the task of learning Mishnah is, in large part, a task of memorization. So he had us memorize all of the orders of the Mishnah. There are six orders of Mishnah. He had us memorize in order which tractates are in which order of the Mishnah. And he had us memorize how many chapters are in each tractate of each order of the Mishnah. Which, by the way, there's a mnemonic, not exactly a mnemonic for, but you see when you actually memorize these things that the Mishnah is organized in a very particular way. Um, it's organized in some way kind of like the Quran is memorized, is, uh, is organized. So the Quran is organized uh, not in like chronological historical order, but by the amount of verses in a particular surah. So the Mishnah is organized quite like that too, that uh, you have uh, the, the tractate with the most chapters in it is at the beginning of the order, and then it kind of de decreases over the course of the order. So in the first order of the Mishnah, which is Zra'im, which means seeds, it's agricultural law, the first tractate uh, in that is Brachot, which means blessings, and uh, there are, in that order, Brachot has the most chapters, uh, and the next most uh, is Demai, which is the second tractate, uh, and uh, and then the third most chapters comes Brachot Demai Kilaim, Kilaim, excuse me, uh, is the third most, and so on and so forth. That's how it's organized. So when you memorize things about the Mishnah, you start learning a lot about its construction and its order and its editing and its redaction. And then when you memorize text from the Mishnah, when you memorize exact Mishnayot, you start learning a tremendous amount more because you start seeing how it was crafted and how it was organized. The, the Mishnah is very interesting. It's crafted as if it are it is direct statements from the rabbis, the great rabbis of the ancient world. And in some ways, it probably does reflect what those rabbis said about any given topic. But you can see that it's very neatly stylized, right? So the, the teachings of any given rabbi in the Mishnah are crafted to be almost like poetry. It has a rhyme. It has a rhythm to it. If you study it for memorization in the original Hebrew, and you start seeing how what our rabbi said about the Mishnah is that it is Torah Shaba'al Peh. It's oral Torah. Because indeed it's crafted in order to reflect and continue to be, even though it's written down, an oral text, an oral tradition to be transmitted by memory from teacher to student. 
And so Professor Zlotnick made us memorize a lot of Mishnah and was very rigid in particular about and exacting from his students about whether or not you had actually done the work. But he was also very kind and very warm and very gentle. And so it was the only professor at JTS when I was there who invited me and my fellow students over to his home for dinner. And I was surprised that his wife, who was a lovely woman, uh, made us sushi. It was the only time, the first time in my life, I should say, that I ever had homemade sushi was at Professor Zlotnick's house. And while we were there, he loved to hear his students teach and reflect on, uh, on the material that we had been learning in class. And so it was really, in a lot of ways in my life, one of the first times I had ever been to somebody's home for dinner where the conversation was almost exclusively and joyously about Torah. And he had a synagogue in his home. So uh, he had a Sefer Torah in his home, which was amazing, and beautiful art that his wife had done lining the walls of his home. So it had this combination of being both very austere and uh, spiritual and religious and also uh, bright and artistic and creative, and that is who Professor Zlotnick was. He was a uh, very uh, strict and exacting teacher a very precise scholar, but also a deeply committed spiritual person and a lover of beauty and art. And so I'll remember him that way as uh, he passed away yesterday, which is why I'm talking about him today and why I'm thinking about him today, because Professor Zlotnick, I think, deserves to be remembered because, like I said, he was not Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was not... Mordechai Kaplan, at least uh, not in publicity. And so I fear that, uh, that his legacy and his memory might be lost. And so I want to share his name with you and his memory with you and his legacy with you because I hope that we all can remember him. He was a devoted student of uh, the late Professor Shaul Lieberman, who is noted in his generation as being the greatest Talmudic scholar of perhaps the 20th century, all of the 20th century. And inspired by uh, Saul Lieberman's scholarship in Talmud, Professor Zlotnick wrote this great book, which you could still find here and there, The Iron Pillar Mishnah, which talks about the redaction form and intent of the Mishnah. And reading this book, which I have to admit is not even though Professor Zlotnick wanted it to be in some way understandable by the layperson, is not always, you need a little bit of advanced preparation and knowledge before you can pick it up and read it. But if you do read it, it will give you tremendous insight about what the Mishnah is and what it was trying to accomplish and why it's so beautiful. So in order to kind of share with you a little bit of Professor Zlotnick's teachings about the Mishnah and also to share with you why I think, um, uh, why Professor Zlotnick inspired in me a love of Mishnah, I want to just share with you a couple of insights and a couple of thoughts. So the first is that, I don't know, I've been talking about this term Mishnah, but I'm not sure how many of you are totally familiar with what I'm saying. So the Mishnah uh, is, uh, by the way, the Hebrew word Mishnah means teaching. Right? And, uh, and the Mishnah was an attempt to consolidate Torah Shabbat Peh, oral Torah, which had been, um, an interpretive method 
of uh, Jews since the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai in order to understand what the Torah is meaning to teach and uh, how to apply its practices in life. And so different traditions within Judaism over the course of history approach the interpretation of Torah differently. One such approach and one such interpretive method was uh, done by a group called the Prushim, the Pharisees, um, in the uh, 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 Second Temple period of Jewish history. Uh, the leaders of the Prushims, the Prushim, the leaders of the Prushim became eventually known as rabbis. And, uh, and rabbi means, of course, teacher. Because the Prushim were not a very uh, involved political group, were not a very involved military group. The Prushim were primarily interested in spirituality and the study of Torah. And so the leaders of the Prushim were, were known as rabbis. And eventually the whole group became known as the rabbinic tract or the rabbinic sect of Judaism. And the rabbinic sect, as we may or may not know, after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, for various reasons, the rabbinic sect of Judaism was really all that continued to survive. The rabbis themselves attribute this to um, a, an act of ingenuity by a rabbi named Yochanan ben Zakkai, who during the Roman siege of Jerusalem uh, in 70 CE had his students carry him out of the city in a coffin pretending that he was dead because they knew that they were going to let the dead out of the city during the siege, and they managed to escape with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai in a coffin, and he made it all the way to, uh, to the general uh, Vespasian, uh, excuse me, the general Titus, and, uh, and, and he says to uh, Titus, uh, greetings, Caesar. And Titus says, that's a capital offense to call me Caesar. It's an affront to the Caesar in Rome. And Yochanan ben Zakkai says to him, what I mean to say is that in a matter of days, the Caesar will die and you will be appointed Caesar. And it turned out that that's exactly what happened. And so Titus then says to Yochanan ben Zakkai, what can I grant you for the uh, act of prophecy and kindness that you've done to me? And, and Yochanan ben Zakkai says, give me Yavne and its scholars. He could have asked for anything, but he knew that to preserve Judaism in the wake of a certain destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, what he needed was to transport and transfer Judaism outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple, to make sure that it was preserved by virtue of Torah and Torah study. And that was a revolution in Judaism, that Judaism could continue, Judaism could persist just by studying Torah and just by praying outside of the context of the temple. And over the course of the next 70 years, it was a tumultuous period for the Jews. But during that 70 years, the rabbis continued to teach, continued to train more scholars and more rabbis who continued to spread the rabbinic interpretation of Judaism all over the land of Israel and the Jewish world. And so that after the Bar Kokhba revolt failed in 135 BC, uh, excuse me, 135 CE, and a series of very harsh persecutions led by the Roman government began, the rabbis realized of the time that they were in real danger of losing Judaism altogether. 
So what they did was they decided to take a tradition that had largely been oral, had largely been transmitted from teacher to student, and write it down. And by writing it down, they crystallized a form of Judaism that was a radical, in some ways, departure from the Judaism that had existed beforehand. They had to reform Judaism before there was such a thing as reform Judaism. They had to reconstruct Judaism before there was a way of reconstructing Judaism. They had to conserve Judaism before there was a conservative Judaism. The rabbis had to do all of those things, and that's what they did in the Mishnah. They conserved a Judaism that existed before. They reconstructed it to be valid and valuable in their time, and they reformed it to exist and perpetuate in an era where Jews had to live in far-flung regions because they were persecuted in different places. They had to perpetuate it in places where there was no temple and no centralized Jewish authority. So the Mishnah was an opportunity to conserve, reconstruct, and reform Judaism in an era of Jewish danger and Jewish peril. And I think about that for our time, following the trauma of the Holocaust and the exaltation of the creation of the state of Israel, the changed dynamic of what it means to be a Jew in America and in the Western world. We are living in a changed era, a radically changed era of Judaism. Some people argue no different in terms of the, the, the great shifts that have happened in our world and in the Jewish world in particular, no different than when the temple was destroyed in 70 CE or when the Hadrianic persecutions began in 135 CE, that we today are living in a, an era much like that of the rabbis who composed the Mishnah. And so we can take as inspiration and guidance in how what we do with Judaism today, what the rabbis of the Mishnah did in writing down and consolidating their approach to Judaism. And we can do it, at least from the perspective of conservative Judaism, largely by conserving the conversation that the rabbis had in putting the Mishnah together. The second thing that I love about the Mishnah is that it strives, according to Professor Zlotnick, to be a law code. But unlike many law codes, it preserves debate. It preserves conversation. So it has the law of, uh, of, of Judaism. And in many ways, really, we're not a people of Torah. We're a people of the Mishnah. What we do and how we practice Judaism, you can't really get it just from reading the Torah. You need the Mishnah. In some ways, you need the Mishnah more than you need the Torah. And if you study the Mishnah, which I commend to all of you to do, you could, if you read a chapter a day, study the whole Mishnah in two years, which I did uh, a couple of years back. And it's an incredible process, an incredible journey. You could do it in the English, you could do it in the Hebrew, but I commend it to anybody. And if you read and study the whole Mishnah, what you'll see is the very foundations and the essence of the laws of what we do and how we practice as Jews in ways that you can't just by reading the Torah. And the amazing thing about this law code is even though it has the core of what we do as Jews even today, and most of subsequent Jewish law are basically restatements and crystallizations of the authoritative positions of the Mishnah based on the interpretation of them in the Talmud. But the Mishnah itself, what's amazing about it, in addition to having the authoritative approach, preserves the debate. 
preserves the conversation, preserves the disputes that the rabbis had over the law. And so you might ask, why is it that a text that's trying to be a code of law preserve dissenting opinions? Right? And the reason is because it cherished the process. It cherished the conversation. The rabbis who edited the Mishnah, and more specifically the rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who edited the Mishnah, did so in a way to teach us that at the core of what it is to be Jewish is to be continually part of an ongoing conversation. That there aren't really orthodoxies. There might be an approach that we ultimately agree is the right one collectively together, but there is a debate about everything and a conversation about everything and all perspectives have a place at the table. And so this Shabbat, I'm feeling deeply sad about the loss of Professor Zlotnick and deeply grateful that he showed me the beauty and the joy and the depth and the richness of this great foundational text that we have as Jews called the Mishnah. And I'll continue studying it in his honor. And I pray that we continue studying and looking to the Mishnah in his honor and for our benefit. And I pray that the memory of Dov Zlotnik always be a source of inspiration and blessing. Shabbat Shalom.